So each morning over these past days, the meditation instructions have been expanded, starting with the breath and then opening to all of the sensations in the body, and then mental states, thoughts, emotions, sounds. So you've been practicing being with this range of mental and physical phenomena very directly, really engaging with it with mindfulness. And in the context of one of the Buddha's most fundamental teachings, what you've been doing is developing what are called the four foundations of mindfulness. So now you know what you've been doing. So tonight's talk is uh, a presentation of that particular teaching of the Buddhas. So in a way, it will be a kind of review of some of what you've been hearing and perhaps an elaboration on some of it. So the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, feelings or feeling tone, mind, and dhammas, or the patterns of mind. And it's said in the teachings that this is very important work, this development of these four foundations. Because with practice, what we're doing is developing a kind of groove of mindfulness in all of these different areas in our lives. And with practice, as we become more accustomed to bringing mindfulness into these areas, it becomes easier to work in that way, not only on retreat, but in our daily lives, to establish mindfulness in these areas, to use them in a way as kind of reference points for being present. So it's a very core teaching. The Buddha clearly stated in this teaching that the establishment of mindfulness in these ways is the direct path to freedom. And he not only talked about where or what areas we should bring mindful attention to, but also how to be mindful, what quality of mindfulness. So in this teaching, he emphasized over and over as he introduced each new object of mindfulness or area that we should be ardent, which really means bringing a wholehearted presence to the experience, a very engaged, alive presence, that we should be fully aware and mindful having put away covetousness and grief for the world, which means craving and aversion. So it's being with things just as they are, with a sense of a very awake, alive, or energetic presence. And this quality of mindfulness that we bring into any of these areas body, feeling tone, mind, and dhammas, or patterns of mind, is very important. And we've been stressing this over the past few days. It's different than an intellectual understanding. It's really much more of a participatory experience 
knowing our experience as though from the inside of it. Awareness within the experience. And it's said in this teaching that when we bring this kind of mindfulness, without clinging, without resisting, into our mind-body experience, any piece of it can be a doorway to awakening, to freedom. That we actually have everything we need in any moment's experience in order to be liberated. So the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body. We start with the body because it's the most tangible. It seems like it should be such an easy thing then to really be mindful in the body. But is it? Often not so much. On a pretty fundamental level, we can often be quite out of touch with our bodies, not really inhabiting our bodies with a fullness of presence. So the walking meditation that we do on a retreat is a great support in this area. I know a lot of practitioners that I've spoken to over the years are much more inclined or open to doing the sitting and perhaps less so with the walking. And I think, in a way, it really points to the sort of inclination in our culture to place more importance on the mind than on the experience or the simplicity of being in the body. I know at times in my own practice, when I've been really working with mindfulness of body, I experience it as an incredible relief to just be with that simplicity of being with sensations. The body can be a lot quieter than the mind. And this is really apparent, of course, when there's a strong mental state present, you know, a difficult one, such as anger or fear. If we're able to shift out of the mind, to shift out of a preoccupation with the stories, in the mind, and drop into the actual experience in the body, it can be much more workable. When the mental proliferation stops or lessens, and we can let that storm move through more easily. Sometimes in that kind of a situation, when there's a difficult emotional state happening, to Just let the awareness settle in the body and feel what is happening in the present moment. We can get in touch with that sense of contraction or tightness or tension. And just relaxing that in the body really can give more space to the mind to allow that storm or that proliferation to pass through. Mindfulness of breath, of course, is one of the ways that we work quite a bit with in this first foundation of mindfulness. It's a wonderful object of meditation, the breath, because it's a constantly changing thing. 
So being using something that's changing continuously as an object of awareness is really good practice because we learn how to be steady with our mindfulness within this changing stream of experience. In a way, we're finding a point of balance that isn't fixed, but neither is it wavering. And this is really a helpful thing to develop. That kind of balance serves us really well when we begin to open to mental states, for example, which can be so much more subtle and so much more rapid, and they can really pull us off. So also in this first foundation of mindfulness, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the positions that the body is in, the four positions that are said to be good positions for meditation. Sitting, walking, standing, lying down. Simply knowing that we're doing this when we are. Aware, mindful of ourself in, this diff- in these different postures. If we really develop this on retreat, of course, it carries over very well into life because we're in those postures all the time. And again, that groove of mindfulness begins to carry into our lives. So this is a really good practice to bring into daily life. It's also what we've been suggesting for the in-between times on retreat here, when you're not in your formal sitting or walking practice to simply be aware of the body, the posture of the body. Be aware of yourself moving, walking out of the hall, standing in line, waiting for lunch, resting in your room. Just that awareness, a broad awareness, grounded in the body. Similarly, in this first foundation, the actions of the body are another area to develop mindfulness. Bending, stooping, turning, reaching, just all of the movements that make up the course of the day. And when we do this, again, not in a heavy-handed way, it can be with a light touch, but it brings a real sense of continuity to our practice, which, of course, really empowers the practice. Also in this first foundation of mindfulness, of body, there is a contemplation that we don't often teach in this hall, but that occasionally people will practice, which is a reflection on the various parts of the body. It's 32 parts of the body, and one actually goes through this list in one's mind. It goes something like this, just to give you a sense of it. Hair of the head, hair of the body, skin, bone, nails, sinews, pus, blood, spittle, phlegm, and the different organs. And it's said that doing this contemplation, this reflection on the various parts of the body is a good practice if we're experiencing a lot of lust as you might imagine. (laughs) 
What we're doing is actually seeing the body very clearly as it is, for what it is. And it's not meant to create disgust or hatred of the body, but really it can provide a sort of balancing perspective to what might superficially seem so alluring, so interesting. Another way that it's taught in this first foundation to develop mindfulness of the body is in terms of knowing it in its elemental nature. And it's said in these teachings that the body is comprised of the same elements that the earth is. Elements of earth, air, fire, water. And what this means, how this is known in our meditation practice is the earth element, of course, is experienced as solidity, hardness, weight, tightness. The air element is movement or pressure. The fire element, coolness, heat, temperature in the body, and also the decomposition of the body. And the water element is both the actual water in the body, but also the quality of cohesion or fluidity. Experiencing the body, establishing mindfulness in, in this elemental, in its elemental nature, the concepts that we have about my body begin to break down or begin to become more transparent, more clearly seen as concepts. And this isn't something that we need to try to make happen. It actually is born quite naturally out of our practice. In fact, you're already doing this without necessarily being aware. Whenever we experience the the sensations in the body from the inside on the level of direct experience, such as burning or tightness, pressure, throbbing, rather than my knee, that one that always gives me trouble. You can see the difference. That's what we're doing. We're tuning in to this elemental nature of the body. I can remember on my first 10-day retreat, um, which was in the desert in Yucca Valley, California, 1985 or 86. It was a very challenging retreat. I can't, I don't remember why. I'm not sure that I even knew why then. It was just, there were a lot of emotions coming up and a fair amount of tears during the retreat. And I was kind of not so comfortable with with this, a little embarrassed and you know, unsure of whether this was okay. And I remember really clearly this one moment when I saw it's just water. It was actually a really liberating moment where the stories dropped away and there was just that direct experience of what was happening. Water. And it was all right. Another reflection that the Buddha taught 
is on the decomposition of the body as a corpse. And again, this isn't one that we generally teach here, but it's interesting just in terms of understanding this first foundation. It's said that there are, I think, nine different cemetery or charnel ground meditations that one can do. And when I think about it, it makes so much sense in a way, particularly in our culture, where the denial of death and immortality is so strong, where we think, you know, as that veneer of our seeming immortality begins to break down, we think something's wrong, you know, that somehow we're failing. So that kind of meditation or reflection, you know, like on the, the process of dying or death, is not meant to be gloomy or leading to despair. That would actually be an incorrect use of it. It's actually meant to lead to ease or freedom from fear because we're in touch with the truth that the body does break down. We're seeing things the way they really are. We're directly in touch with the impermanent nature of the body. I think I've experienced at times on retreat or come to understand this practice of really developing mindfulness of the body in a way as a practice of restraint rather than pursuing interesting ideas and thoughts, just coming back to that simplicity, letting go of what might seem like something more interesting in the mind, and grounding again in the direct experience of the body. So this is some of this first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, The second of the four foundations is mindfulness of feelings or feeling tone. And in terms of the Buddhist teachings, this word feeling has a very simple and straightforward meaning, which is much more like feeling tone. It's said that every moment of contact at a sense door, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, there is a feeling, an accompanying accompanying feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. And this area is another very significant, very important area to develop mindfulness. The Buddha taught that these subjective qualities of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling are a critical place of practice because without mindfulness, we're habitu- we're, we automatically respond in a habitual way of clinging or of aversion or perhaps of simply spacing out if there's neutral experience. And these are the three unwholesome roots in the mind that Sharon spoke about last night of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we can see the importance of developing mindfulness in this area. 
One of the real uh, common traps in meditation practice for people is thinking that when we have a sitting that's full of pleasant experiences or pleasant feelings, that it's good practice. And that when it isn't pleasant, it's not good practice. And we're not doing well. And something's wrong. Or when things are fairly calm or neutral, we tend to just slack off. We forget to actually continue to pay attention. But the quality of our meditation is not characterized by how much we like or don't like what's happening, but actually by how much wisdom and compassion we can meet each experience with, whether it's unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. And I know in my own experience that quite often the deepest insights are born out of a difficult or more of a struggling place in practice, not necessarily out of those very pleasant moments. So at first, working with this second foundation of mindfulness might mean that we notice when we're already lost in the reaction to the feeling tone, the habitual response to one of those qualities. But even then, when awareness is there, there's a possibility of letting go then, of just simply, again, we can drop into the body and kind of work with relaxing that tension or contraction of aversion or in a way relaxing that grip in the mind and heart of wanting, of clinging. And as we practice becoming familiar, developing mindfulness of feeling tone, we start to recognize these qualities, these feelings, sooner before we get lost in the reaction. And so this has the effect of creating some space within our experience and giving us ultimately more choice about how we respond in life. And this is no small thing. There was a time um, when I was practicing on a long retreat here in the fall, one of the three-month retreats, when I was really working with this particular foundation of mindfulness, just really um, trying to be aware of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I remember the timing of it specifically because it was in the first days of November, which can either be, you know, like feeling like the beginning of winter or occasionally can be a really late Indian summer. And on this particular time when I was practicing, it was one of those very late Indian summers. So it was a beautiful, warm, early November day. And I went for my normal after-lunch walk around the three-mile loop out here. And I remember it was just exquisitely beautiful. The trees were bare, but it was a blue sky, warm. I had a T-shirt on. And, and a white skirt. I remember very clearly what I was wearing. You'll see why. 
And I was walking around the loop, and I was noting pleasant, pleasant, ah, pleasant. You know, it was also pleasant, the air on my skin and the smells of the air and just that warmth, you know, after having some coolness of the fall. And at a certain point, one of the neighborhood dogs, um, who's no longer around here, her name was Kelsey, joined me on my walk. And she wasn't right up next to me. She was running a bit ahead of me. And it just was pleasant to have the dog walking with me on this lovely day. And there was a certain point when I noticed kind of a funny smell. But being a greedy type, I was actually not totally mindful. I was a bit attached to the pleasantness. So I didn't really pay attention to the smell, and I just continued to really focus on the pleasant qualities of the day. So I continued my walk, and I came around to where there's a pond. And when we got to the pond, Kelsey and I, Kelsey charged into the pond, as she sometimes did, and got soaking wet, and then ran over to where I was sitting in meditation, you know, in that pleasant, sunny day, and she was soaking wet, And when she got quite close to me, she shook. And at that point, I was showered, literally, with what she had been rolling in, in the fields, which had recently been manured. And it was what I had smelled, but didn't really pay attention to. So I literally, I won't say it, but you know what kind of shower it was. My white skirt completely speckled, you know, my arms. And the interesting thing was that the first thing actually out loud, out of my mouth, was unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) And then I laughed because it just surprised me that that's what came out of my mouth. So we can kind of see the benefits of noticing (laughs) particularly the unpleasant feeling tone in experience because it can really cut through what could have been or usually is quite a chain reaction of continued unpleasantness. We have some unpleasant feeling and then we hate it. And then we hate it some more and then we might end up hating ourselves for having that feeling. But if we can just notice the unpleasantness, it doesn't need to continue. So it can be a little easier to understand the benefit of that. But it's also very important to be mindful of the pleasant feelings. And it's actually much more difficult because we're so tempted to lose ourselves in pleasant sensations, pleasant experiences, to just dive in and wallow, which is basically what I was doing on my walk (laughs) without realizing it. But without awareness of those pleasant feelings, the habit of the mind, of course, is to go into clinging. We end up contracting around that wanting, that desire, And in essence, what's happening is this process of becoming. Because we solidify. Things get quite solid around that wanting. Identification with the wanting happens. I want that. 
Why can't I have that? So the challenge is, can we surrender the short-term pleasure of wallowing or losing ourselves in pleasant feeling for the resting of mind, the peace of mind, that's possible in the simple knowing of feelings as feelings. There's a deeper pleasure in this, and it's a pleasure that's not dependent on conditions. The Buddha said, the greatest happiness is peace. The greatest happiness is peace. We begin to taste this in our own experience. It's the pleasure of resting in the truth, in how things are, that things are changing. They're not lasting. We can't hold on. But it takes courage at times in practice and in life to surrender or sacrifice what is perceived as a lasting pleasure, but it isn't lasting. And this doesn't mean that we don't have pleasant experience, of course. So it's also important to be aware of the neutral quality of experience. And we're learning this as we practice using the breath as an anchor, just coming back to the breath over and over again, even when it's subtle and seemingly unexciting. If we're the kind of people, and I know for myself that this can be true, the kind of person who feels most alive, most awake, when there's some kind of intensity in my life, we can miss quite a lot. If it means that we're just kind of sleepwalking through the rest of the day, Because life is made up of quite a mix. Some strong, some intense things, and quite a lot of neutral experience. Subtle feelings. So if you're practicing with this, if you're looking at this, if you're working with developing mindfulness of this second foundation, keep it simple. It's not something to try to figure out, is this pleasant? Unpleasant. Neutral maybe slightly pleasant. Just go with your gut reaction to it. One of the things that we see as we look, as we become really mindful of feeling tones, is that they don't last, that they're changing constantly. We see that what we chase after is so ephemeral, fleeting. So we begin to understand on a very deep level the folly of identifying with any of them. The third foundation of mindfulness is mind itself, or consciousness, or the knowing faculty of the mind. And this quality of mind arises spontaneously whenever sense objects arise. So whenever there's a moment of contact at one of the sense doors, but mostly this quality of knowing is colored by one of the very many mental states that might also be arising. 
And it's really important to recognize these mental states, to come to know, in a way, the kind of climate of the mind. Because it's kind of like the roots of a tree. What's deep underneath the surface and feeding all of the outward expressions, but is unseen. And yet so much grows out of it. What's underneath all of the manifestations of mind? So we start, we begin with becoming aware of the different experiences and forces that stir the mind. All of the thoughts, emotions, motivations, intentions. The contents of mind are really challenging to actually develop as a foundation for mindfulness. In a way, I think the most challenging area of our experience to be objective about. It's much easier to recognize and relate to sensations arising and passing in the body as just sensations and not necessarily my knee. But we tend to identify quite readily and often rather firmly with our thoughts and our emotions, thinking, well, it is me. I'm angry. I'm sad. Rather than seeing the anger or sadness as an, a, a, a rising and passing mental with quite often accompanying physical phenomena. Emotions in particular tend to be quite sticky, where there's an easy and quick identification. So it's important to remember that mind states also arise from causes and conditions. And as we bring our mindful attention to the states of mind, we see that they change constantly, that they're not permanent And through that seeing, that direct, clear seeing, experientially, we begin to take them less personally. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese meditation master, describes, I think, really beautifully the quality of awareness that we can bring to different mental states, even difficult ones. He says, Mindful observation is like a lamp which gives light. It is not a judge. It throws light on our anger, sponsors it, looks after it in an affectionate and caring way, like an older sibling looking after and comforting her younger sibling. It's a nice framework for remembering just that quality of kindness, basically metta, meeting our different states of mind, different aspects of our experience with that kind of kindness, friendliness. In the sutta of this particular teaching, the foundations of mindfulness, it says we should know mind affected by greed as mind affected by greed. And we know mind unaffected by greed as mind unaffected by greed. 
and in the same way, hatred and delusion in the mind, and the mind that is free from them. So we know all of the different mental states that are present, all of the different expressions of those three unwholesome roots in the mind, craving, aversion, but also calm when the mind is free of those those roots. Peace, joy, love, friendliness. And we know them again from that inner experience of them, that kind of participatory awareness where we actually very deeply experience their qualities, knowing them kind of from the inside out, which is different than indulging them. It's feeling them clearly, but not necessarily because there's less identification or even perhaps no identification. We're not acting them out. We're not indulging them. But feeling them, understanding them in that very direct, direct way is how wisdom deepens. It's wisdom born out of our direct experience. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And this includes the contents of our minds. So thoughts, feelings, reactions, self-hatred, any of it can be seen in the light of awareness. And even just to notice on retreat that we're distracted, or that we're confused, is actually good practice. Mind states are just mind states, both the wholesome and the unwholesome ones. They're not who we are. So that sense of identification begins to loosen or even profoundly drop away at times. We need to be mindful when there is no confusion, no contraction, to notice the liberated mind as the liberated mind. And we can experience moments of this even without being fully enlightened. Just noticing simple moments of freedom, acknowledging what's there when we let go. It's not necessarily some new or better state that then we need to maintain or hold on to or identify with. It's more of that clear, open awareness. We can take delight in those moments, those moments of letting go, those moments of peace, of tasting that deeper happiness of peace. The Buddha said, this is one of my favorite quotations of the Buddha, that the mind is naturally radiant and pure and that it is only because of visiting forces, like the hindrances, for example, that we suffer. The natural state of mind is clear, radiant, open awareness. 
I had an interesting, what I would call, householder insight very recently. Or maybe I should call it a housekeeper (laughs) insight. Because it's around um, keeping house. (laughs) And this was around the holidays, and I spent the better part of a day one day when we were having some friends over for dinner cleaning the house. And I got it like just the way I really like it. (laughs) Really just spacious and clear and uncluttered and clean. And it just, I feel good when my environment is like that. And I enjoyed it. And then in a few hours, actually, it was like the next day, it was gone. I live with other people, and you can't maintain it. You know, I'm sure you know this. And I was frustrated and disappointed and weary and kind of sad, and I said to my husband, you know, I spent so much time cleaning it, and I got it just how I wanted it, and it didn't even last 24 hours. And, you know, what could he say? (laughs) Not much. But... Later that morning, after I had confessed my disappointment, we were in the kitchen, and he was making coffee, and I said, I'm going to go sit. And I actually hadn't been sitting much in recent days around the holidays, and I just sat down with no agenda. And within minutes, I had this profound (laughs) householder insight, which was, oh... This is where I need to go to find that clear, uncluttered, pristine space that I crave. And it's not that I was having a sitting that was without thinking. There were thoughts going through, but it was as though I just tasted again, even though there were thoughts going through, that quality of the awareness that is big enough to hold those thoughts moving through and taste that spaciousness inside. And it was like this very sort of important realization, oh yeah, this is what I need to do. You know, I can't keep the house clean, but I can sit. So I find it interesting that we tend to kind of overlook that inherent capacity that we all have, you know, to, to not trust it, to not nourish it, take care of it. And in fact, we tend to identify so strongly quite often with so many other more difficult aspects of our experience and of our minds, kind of, one might say, even neurotic (laughs) tendencies. We tend to just take that as who we are. I heard this report on NPR just a few days ago about robots that they're trying to um, program in some personality for the robots because they feel that, and in studies show, that if the robots have some indications or you know, some expressions, some programming 
of personality that people will like using them more and buy them. But what was interesting, and I found actually really disturbing on some level, about this report was that what they were programming into these robots, I thought, what an opportunity. Like, we could have a robot who'd be, like, enlightened, you know? (laughs) And just such a great reminder of, you know, our potential. But no, they're programming in our neuroses. And that's what people relate to. I actually brought the article. I don't know we can find just... (laughs) It says it's all part of an experiment on how to make robots less boring. The answer, Simmons says, is simple. Turn the robot into a soap opera. So they just, they're describing this particular robot who works as a receptionist, or its function is a receptionist. And it has a name. It's Tank. And they say Tank is kind of a pathetic character. <laughs> Tank seems kind of bitter. (laughs) He he complains in his synthesized voice. (laughs) This is what we want to relate to? It says, emotionally, Tank is a loser. (laughs) It says, it will be interesting to see if people feel sorry for him and are willing to do things to try to cheer him up, (laughs) says the creator of the robot. As an example, he types in, I love you. This doesn't impress Tank, who replies evenly, you do not even know me. (laughs) So... We have a choice. (laughs) Maybe it's not to buy that robot. So the third foundation is mindfulness of mind. And quite often the contents that are, or the states of mind that are coloring that clear knowing faculty. The fourth foundation is mindfulness of dhammas. And this is often translated as objects of mind, which is a bit strange because objects sound so solid and the mind and its contents are so ephemeral. I've heard this fourth foundation interpreted in a few different ways. And one of the ways that I've found really helpful is to think of mindfulness of dhammas as understanding the patterns of mind. So if the thoughts and emotions and contents of the mind are like the sea, the patterns or the dhammas are like the various currents or waves on the sea. And in this, just this fourth foundation, the Buddha gave several Um, lists. The Buddha was a famous list maker describing various patterns of mind. And I'll mention just a few of them. It can be helpful to recognize that what these lists are talking about are expressions or manifestations of the mind that is colored by one of the factors of mind. So for example, The mind colored by greed, hatred, 
or delusion manifests as one of the hindrances that Guy discussed the other evening. And mindfulness of these particular waves on the sea of mind means knowing they're present when they're present and knowing they're not when they're not. But when they are, understanding them as the very place of practice when they're present. It's so easy to think that something's wrong if the hindrances are present, one or many of them. But it can actually be a very powerful place of practice in itself. And knowing they're absent when they're absent. We don't want to miss the peace, the ease of those times when they're absent by only fixating on when they're present. Another list that the Buddha included in this fourth foundation is the factors of awakening. Just in case you were thinking all the lists were going to be negative. The factors of awakening are these very wholesome forces in the mind, wholesome qualities in the mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And these are the qualities of mindfulness, investigation, energy, delight, concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. And again, the way we develop this as a foundation of mindfulness is to know when these qualities are present and to know when they're not present. And as we practice recognizing them in our own experience, mindfully being aware of them, we come to know that, of course, they too are arising and passing. They're not the goal or the end of our practice. And this took me a good while to get in my own practice to notice how attached I was to particular states of mind, some of these states. Again, being a greedy type, I was easily attached. My particular favorites were and are concentration and delight or rapture. I liked these states, and I thought that I was doing well when they arose in practice. But they come, they go. They come in and out of balance all the time. And so it was a setup for me for suffering because for a long time I measured my practice against whether or not these states were present. But it's a trap. They're all changing. There's no permanent delight, no permanent concentration. And none of these states is more me than any one of the hindrances are, for example. So the hindrances, the factors of awakening I just mentioned. Another way that this fourth foundation is described is as the six sense organs and their objects. So the eye, the objects of sight, and seeing consciousness. And we're developing mindfulness in this area whenever we're aware of the simple process of seeing very directly. 
or when we're sitting in the hall and we're aware of hearing very directly, without concept, just being very present for that experience. And the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and what we feel, and the mind and what arises in the mind. Sometimes when mindfulness is strong and there's energy in the system, we're awake, we can experience that moment of contact at a sense door and the knowing is quite pure, just very direct, very immediate. And other times, maybe one of the hindrances is present really subtly even, and it colors our experience. There's a simile in the teachings that illustrates what's meant by this. It said that there are two oxen, a black ox and a white ox, and they're joined together by a yoke. So a monk asks the Buddha, is the black ox a fetter or a hindrance to the white ox? Or is the white ox a fetter to the black ox? And the Buddha answers, it is the yoke which joins the two. That is the fetter. So likewise in our experience, it's neither the I nor the object of sight, the object that we see, that is the problem. It's what arises between them. And with sound. If we hear an irritating sound, for example, a noise, where is the problem? It's not the ear. And actually, it's not the sound. It's what arises between the two. It's either our clinging to the silence or our resisting the sound. The sense of self that is born, that arises with that wanting or that resisting, is the fetter. If we see the other ox as the problem, it's so easy to blame. To blame, you know, that poor person in the hall who is sneezing or coughing. So practicing in this way, we begin to notice this cause and effect of when we get caught in reactivity and we start to learn, we start to understand what leads to suffering in our experience and what leads to peace. And this understanding of what leads to suffering and what leads to peace is, of course, a very profound way we can know our own experience. This is spelled out in the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which actually is also included in this fourth foundation. So this means that in our practice, we can begin to experience our lives in terms of these truths. This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the path or the way of practice that leads to the end of suffering. It's a way of understanding our lives as a lawful unfolding, rather than something that we take so personally. 
And this might sound kind of technical or unfeeling, but actually bringing mindful attention to the patterns of our hearts and minds doesn't dehumanize us. Actually, the opposite is true, that we learn to open very deeply to all of life because there's less fear. We don't have to be afraid. We're able to meet our experience with more of a balanced heart and mind. So in closing, just a reminder that we don't practice mindfulness for its own sake, that mindfulness is a skillful means to help us awaken. We establish and develop mindfulness in these various areas of body, of feeling tone, of the mind, the patterns of mind, in order to see them more clearly, in order to come to a deeper understanding. And as we practice, more and more moments of mindfulness are available to us. And that continuity of mindfulness has the power to reveal the true nature of reality, the true nature of our lives. And in the the full knowing of this very life, of our own body and mind, our own experience, lies the potential for the heart's release. So let's sit for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.